We are ready for Hebrews chapter number 12 today, which is a follow-up to the list of individuals named and others unnamed referenced in chapter number 11, the heroes of faith, those who didn't necessarily see the fullness of the promises that God had made to them, but they remained faithful. They trusted God. And we're going to include not just simply the Old Testament saints, we're going to think about the saints since the 30 years of the New Covenant period uh, that are going to be in mind of this person that's writing this letter. And he's going to use an illustration that's sports-oriented. And it's an illustration related to stadium games. And so this is what he says, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so we've got this great big bunch of people surrounding us in the stadium of eternity, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, in the ancient times, as I think some still do today, runners would often exercise and practice with weighted clothing, with weighted additions upon their body. But when it came time for the actual competition, they would throw off all of those practice weights. And in many respects, uh, if you're thinking of the Athenian traditions, they would actually throw off all clothing. Um, that would then make them feel so free because all the stuff they used to have in practice is now gone. And so that's the illustration he wants us to use. But sin would be the weights. Now that we have forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ, now that we've thrown away all of those things of the past, let's get on our marks, get set, and run. And where are we running? We're running into eternity. We're running into the arms of God the Father. We're running toward that tape behind which our coach, if we're going to continue the, the metaphor here, Jesus is waiting for us. And he's not just a non-participatory coach. He is a coach that's already run himself. Verse 2, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. And if we're going to use this sports metaphor, think of it as the starter and the finisher of our faith. He already ran the race. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus' race involved racing to the cross and beyond. 
into the resurrection, not just simply the atonement, but into the resurrection. And because of that, he was seated in the king's box. Uh, In some of these sporting events that's being used in the metaphor here, uh, if you were one of the great victors, you would be presented to the emperor, perhaps, or the local governor in the uh, in their particular box at the stadium. You'd be presented with a victor's wreath, uh, which is the Stephanos in the Greek language. Uh, it's where uh, Jesus says, if you are faithful even unto death, I will award you the Stephanos of life, the victor's crown of life. But then... After they'd been awarded their victor's crown, they would often be seated to watch the rest of the games with the emperor or the governor. And so that's where Jesus is at. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the glory of God the Father on high in the great review box of the stadium of eternity. And that's why we need to be running, thinking about cutting that same tape, crossing that same finish line that Jesus did. And so with that sort of encouragement, we move into verse number three. Consider him, meaning Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The whole purpose of this letter was to respond to even hints that some of the Jewish believers in Jesus were thinking about ditching Jesus, backing away from their Christianity because of the persecution, lethal persecution, that had been going on during 65 and into 66 at Rome and on the Italian peninsula. And so these folks are being warned by someone, don't do it, don't back off from Jesus. He is the whole purpose behind being Jewish to begin with. Everything in Jewishness points toward him. Everything climaxes in him. So if you want to respond appropriately to the the problems of life, the threats of persecution, then look at Jesus again. He did not veer off even from the cross itself. And if we will just match Jesus' commitment, we will not grow weary or faint-hearted in our own situation. Now, verse 4 helps us to understand the context of these folks a little bit better. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So wherever they're at, which I suspect they're in what we call Turkey today, in the province of Roman Asia, or possibly uh, over into Galatia, uh, someplace where the gospel has really made a lot of impact in the last uh, 20 years of ministry. Uh, They may have been called names. They may have lost property. 
Some of them might have even had to cool their heels uh, in a, a jail cell for a while. Some of them might have had things uh, confiscated, including money. But the one thing that has not happened to this community of believers is execution. None of them have been killed for their faith. So in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And now he's going to quote from the book of Proverbs. And his his encouragement here is, you need to bear up under the persecutions you are facing, because it's it's par for the course. It's part of being a child of God through Jesus Christ. It's going to come. And you need to look at it as a, um, a growing up exercise. Uh, the word that gets used for discipline here is interesting. Uh, sometimes it has to do with the punishment uh, for inappropriate behavior, but not always. Sometimes it's just simply the, the way of expressing tough teaching, tough training. Uh, you know, a lot of us, we did sports when we were in high school or college, and uh, our coaches were tough. I mean, they pushed us. I, I remember I was not very good at basketball, but I did take basketball as kind of a competitive sport for a few years. I rode the bench most of the time. But I still had to go through the training, and I was out there doing the wind sprints and the leg lifts and uh, the long runs, and man, I was exhausted, and I was at the verge of tears sometimes, and, and we hated all of this stuff. That was discipline. Now, looking back on it, I appreciate that coach. At the time, I thought he was trying to kill us, that he was being mean, uh, but now I understand he was pushing us hard in practice to prepare us for when the opponents pushed us hard in the real game. And so here is his application of this proverb. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. So being told, you got more in you. You can do it. Don't stop now, right? Quote, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then that's the end of the quote from the book of Proverbs. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. See, if I just told the coach, I don't like it. I don't like the way you treat us. I'm out of here. Uh, that, that would have been me giving up. Uh, and uh, you can't do that and participate in a sport. You have to follow the, court, the, uh, the coach's disciplinary techniques. And so here it is in Christianity, in faith. 
that we have to follow the discipline of the Lord if we're going to endure. And that means never, ever throwing Jesus under the bus. No matter what anybody says, no matter what anybody threatens, we will not deny him. We will not back off of him. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. Understand that the Greek language um, uses the masculine plural for both genders collectively. That's just the way it works in so many of the ancient languages. So it's, it is God treating you as his kids, as his children. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are a little illegitimate children and not sons, not daughters. Uh, parents care about their own kids specifically. Parents are not going to randomly stop kids on the street and say to them, have you brushed your teeth today? Have you done your homework? Are you practicing your instrument? Because they're not their kids. Parents focus specifically on their own kids' discipline. And those parents that are bad parents, and yes, we have some, who don't care, who don't care whether their kid goes to school, don't care whether their kid eats right, don't care whether or not their kid has proper hygiene. Those parents don't really care about those kids. It's the parent that pushes that cares. And so that's the illustration point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make this right here. Verse number nine. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. It gets back to the illustration I used about the coach. Uh, now, as we're all grown up, uh, we look back on what our parents did when they pushed us, and what our coaches did when they pushed us, and what our teachers did when they pushed us fondly. We appreciate it now, because we know that they wanted to help us. They knew we had it in us. We just needed prodding. And so now we respect them. Now, he says, that's the way it is in human life. Rest of verse 9. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So now we're talking about God our Father and his discipline toward us. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So God says, be holy as I am holy. Be perfect, be mature, be fulfilling as I am all these things. Be merciful as I am merciful. God expects us to push ourselves as he pushes us because he wants us like himself. Now, verse 11 is the reality we've already talked about. For the moment, 
all discipline seems painful. You know, having to do those exercises, having to spend that time working on that instrument, having to go and do chores at home, and all of the other things that you can talk about is part of discipline in growing up. It's not fun. Now, if you want to talk about correction discipline, that's not fun either. But sometimes we had to have that negative reminder in our life. Don't do that. Don't push your sister around. Don't talk back to me. Don't lie to me. Lying is worse than the original offense you're trying to cover, right? All those sorts of conversations. When we're going through those tough times of discipline, whether training discipline or corrective discipline, it's not fun, he says. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We appreciate that. We acknowledge that. And we in the church today need to be more cognizant of this being expected of us. You know, I'm going to speak as a preacher right now. For a lot of people, it is easy to be lazy about your Christianity. You go to church on Sunday, as long as there's not something else going on, and you show up for worship service, and everything is done for you. They even throw the Bible verse up on the screen, so you don't even have to bring your Bible to the church building. If that's your form of Christianity, you are going to be a slug. You're going to be a lazy lout when it comes to things getting tough in your life. What we need are Christians that will exercise themselves. They will be in church as often as they can. They will come to Sunday school. They will go to Wednesday night and Sunday night when it's offered. They will do Bible study on their own. They will memorize Bible passages, and they will challenge themselves to do better day by day and not be a lazy Christian. Because if they take that tack, they will be ready when the tough times come. And so, folks, I want you to be honest with yourself. Where are you at in your own spiritual fitness? Do you need to do some more training? Do you need to have somebody like a coach, like a preacher, reminding you to do some more memorization, do some more Bible study? Is that what you need? then you need to get somewhere where that happens. I try to do a little bit here by the radio. But each one of us need to also do it for each other. You know, one of the things that happens in coaching situations, and I think it also happens in teaching situations, is the athletes help each other to train. The students get into study groups and help each other to prepare uh, for um, class and for tests. And so that's what we need in the church as well. Verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So get yourself in an exercise program, a spiritual exercise program. Make straight paths for your feet, 
so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now remember, this chapter started with a sports metaphor. He just keeps pushing that same metaphor. So we need to help each other get exercised and disciplined and even wrapped up if that's what it needs. Because there's, you know, sometimes in a sports situation, you know, somebody's got a weaker ankle, so you got to get it wrapped up. And a lot of times it's another player that'll help them do that. We need to make sure that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are at the peak of their spiritual fitness because we're in all this together. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, we need, as Paul had said in other places in his letters, we need to try to get along with everybody. Not just simply get along with other Christians, we need to get along with other people generally to be at peace with them because we need those opportunities to help them find Jesus. And you can't do that when you're talking people down, when you are dissing them, when you are treating them as junk. So we've got to work on our own interpersonal relationships so that we can then help with their holiness, just like our holiness needs to be intact. Because without holiness, no one's going to come into the presence of the Lord. Remember, he had said, be holy as I am holy. Now, see to it, verse 15 says, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So that's, again, that idea of partnering up, uh, helping people through uh, the tough times together. I remember when we were in basic training, one of the things that would happen on our morning runs, it happened especially at the very beginning of our training together when people were not uh, in good physical condition. Some of the ones that were having the tougher time would start dropping back through the ranks during our morning run. And those folks toward the back would eventually start grabbing them and holding on to them and making them keep the pace, helping them make the pace. That's what we need in Christianity. We all need to understand we're in this together. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This idea of a root of bitterness, just think of a bad attitude. All of us understand uh, what bad attitudes can do uh, in a family, in a company, in a workplace, in uh, relationships of any sort. We've got to work on those things. We've got to repair those relationships. Uh, and we don't want anyone to lose out on the ultimate relationship with God because of these bad attitudes. Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral, and that is a big one in our society today. Uh, sexual immorality is the catch-all term for any type of intimate activity outside the boundaries of God-designed marriage. And God-designed marriage is one man, one woman together for a lifetime. Anything outside of those boundaries, premarital, extramarital, uh, polymarital, um, 
homosexual, whatever. All of those are outside the boundaries of God's design for sexuality. And so we need to encourage people to not get caught up in that. Uh, And to be unholy. Uh, We keep emphasizing this. God says, be holy as I am holy. So be like God. How do you know what God is like? Read his book. And so he says, make sure that there's no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So he is an example of someone that didn't stick with God's design for marriage. He didn't stick with the design of God for a personal lifestyle. And the illustration that the author uses, which is interesting, last chapter we had a whole bunch of illustrations of people that had faith in God. Here we have an example of someone that did not have faith in God, and his life showed it. It says, who sold his birthright for a single meal. So he was the firstborn in the family, and his brother uh, caught him one day uh, in a um, situation where he was not, where Esau was hungry, and Jacob says, well, sell me your birthright. And Esau's response was, well, what good is a birthright if I'm starving to death? Here, you can have my birthright. And so he sold it for a bowl of, of lentils, which showed that he didn't really value it at that time. He didn't see it as something significant. So verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he did desire to inherit the blessing, when he suddenly realizes in later life that this thing was very valuable, it was too late. says he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there is somewhere out there, the point of no return, where it can't be fixed. Now, for Esau, he lost the birthright by his own free will choice, and there was no way of fixing that. It was done. That was a point of no return. When we're talking about salvation, in the time period in which we live, the point of no return is death. As long as you're breathing, there is a chance to repent and get things right with God. And I hope you'll do that. Now, there is a time coming in the book of Revelation, uh, Day of the Lord, when the mark of the beast has been uh, put in place, uh, that the point of return, no return, will be taking that mark voluntarily. Uh, You cannot repent and come back from that. And uh, so the angels in the book of Revelation are represented as communicating that message to every human being on the planet that uh, you do this and you're done. But currently, there's still the place for repentance. So if you need to repent, please do so.